Welcome to the Wisdom and Wealth Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Clues. Each week, I'll be leading a series of conversations with our team here at Carson Wealth, which are designed to equip our listeners with the helpful insights necessary to simplify the critical decision points of life. We believe that true wealth is the thing money cannot buy and death cannot take away. Furthermore, we also believe our calling is to enable others to fulfill their own. And to that end, we endeavor. Welcome in again to the Wisdom and Wealth Podcast. Today's conversation centers around simplifying your medical power of attorney plan. Today, I'm joined by Sarah Dewey and Tom Frederick from our team in Omaha. Sarah earned her Juris Doctor degree from the University of Nebraska and is a certified trust and financial advisor, a chartered advisor in philanthropy, and an accredited estate planner. She currently serves as the vice president of our trust services team. Tom also holds a JD from the University of Nebraska and holds the Chartered Financial Consultant and Chartered Life Underwriter designations. He currently serves as a senior planner on our advanced solution team. Most importantly, both these folks want to use their shared knowledge to enrich the lives of others um, for their benefit. Welcome in, everybody. Hi, Josh. Thanks, Josh. So as we navigate this process, uh, we want to make sure that, uh, one, we understand what we're wanting to achieve and understand the powers and, and limitations of uh, the document in place for you know, this medical power or healthcare power of attorney. Um, so what exactly is um, a healthcare power of attorney? Uh, Sarah, would you mind just giving us some broad parameters of kind of what our left and our right limit is? Sure. Uh, power of attorney is a document. You're going to be appointing somebody in that document to be your agent. You probably appoint somebody to be your backup if that person can't be your agent. And that agent is going to be the person who is empowered to voice decisions for you if you're incapable of making them yourself. So you can also, people talk about it being a healthcare proxy, but um, typically it's an HPOA or healthcare power of attorney. Okay. Um, from the outset, you know, it's one of the, uh, you just kind of ideas that, that is floating out there or all here is, Hey, I have a living will. Isn't that sufficient? Um, what would be your, your thought around someone that comes to me, you know, saying something similar? You can't have the living will as the standalone document because the purpose of the living will is to outline those treatment options that you want to have performed on you. You're okay. not giving somebody the power. You're going over what those treatment options and your choices are. So it's the living will is the document that states your preferences for treatment types in various circumstances. And typically this document addresses end of life circumstances. So you're in a persistent vegetative state, you reach a point where you can't make your own decision and you're expressing whether or not you would want that life sustaining treatment. So it's again, outlining what those treatments are that you want to have performed on you, not giving somebody the power to make those decisions. Got it. So it's, I'm calling a living will is I'm calling my shot for something that may be known in advance or maybe thought maybe a possibility in advance, whereas medical power of attorney is kind of the catch all. For, for anything outside of that realm, correct? 
you know, typically those healthcare powers of attorney don't get into detail about treatment okay. choices. They're just giving somebody the power to make choices for you. Yeah. So that's why it's important to have both if you have preferences as to what treatments you want to have performed on you and what treatments you don't. Some people don't have the living will. They just have the healthcare power of attorney and they talk to that person about what they want to have done. Like, look, I don't want to be um, on a, you know, feeding tube uh, unless it's certain that I'm going to recover, you know, they, they outline that, but that's, what's nice to have in writing sometimes, because even if you have that conversation, some people might not remember exactly what you wanted in the heat of the moment when they're under pressure. So having both documents is a really good idea. They work hand in hand. Got it. Okay. Um, sometimes people can tend to be a little bit more relaxed, say, you know, Hey, you know, I, I'll just, we'll, we'll take it as it comes. Um, why do I even need this document. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not that terribly concerned about it. What, what would be your response to that? Well, I think it really comes down to planning. And, and sometimes people, you know, we get a little uh, complacent. And so we we don't desire to do the, the type of planning that we should. And so that type of response that you hear from someone is really reminds me of people that may not want to do the proper planning because a healthcare power of attorney is really essential if you're looking at planning ahead because you never know when you're going to have that healthcare event that's going to lead to a situation where you're incapable of making your own medical decisions. Let's face it, it's a wild card for all of us. Nobody knows what our future health is going to look like. We never know when we're going to have an accident or something that leads to a situation that's an emergency. And so the response to that person is, Hey, you never know when this is going to happen. If you plan ahead by creating a healthcare power of attorney, you can ideally lead to a better result for you where somebody is named to make the decisions on your behalf in advance. So you have some time to plan and really think about who should that person be that's going to make these decisions for me? Because in my mind, I prefer to have somebody that I can choose in advance to make those decisions for me rather than having that, that uh, burden or that, that um, responsibility. responsibility placed on somebody in an emergency situation. So, you know what, my next question is going to be, who, who, who do you think naturally uh, fits the bill to be mm-hmm. that type of person? How nice do I have to be to that person if I'm going to give them this power? Right. Right. Because that is exactly what you do in the healthcare power attorney. You designate a specific person to make these healthcare decisions for you when you're not capable of doing it. So it should be somebody that you have a really close relationship to, ideally. Somebody like your spouse. Um, If you're not married, in my mind, I think of a very close uh, brother or sister or friend of mine, if I have somebody like that. A short memory if they're a sibling. Very exactly. And maybe even a spouse, right? <laughs> because, you know, uh, yeah, there, there are certain times when we are definitely butting heads with all of those people in our lives. So, right. This is somebody that you're close to, that you've spoken to about it in terms of, hey, if the situation arises, here's generally what I think about the type of care I'm looking for. And, you know, that way, if a situation arises, they feel prepared for it. So it's somebody close to you could, like I said, spouse, 
parent, friends, family member that you feel comfortable making those decisions uh, for you in a time of need. So sticking with kind of the agent subject and topic here, who shouldn't be your agent? You know, like who, who is time just an experience told us, yeah, that's not a good choice. Mm -hmm. Well, some States actually have laws that limit who can be your power of attorney. And and generally they're focused around your healthcare provider, your doctor. And I, I think that's generally just because to prevent or protect against a conflict of interest that they don't want your family doctor playing that role as your, your agent. And in some ways, I, I think that makes sense. And, and it's most likely those laws are in existence because in the past, individuals have done that. They've named their doctor as their agent and it's created some sort of problem in the end. And so I think if you're going to look at other people that you should not name as your agent, you have to think about it from a common sense point of view. If I'm in a situation where I can't make decisions, who can actually be there for me and make those decisions? So you don't necessarily want somebody that you're close to that lives across the country and isn't going to necessarily be easily to easily reached in a time of an yeah. emergency. Uh, so I, I think you have to think, like I said, with a common sense perspective, who are you close to, who can be there for you in an emergency? Okay. And I was going to say too, Tom uh, and Josh, what about, you know, naming, if you can't pick a child, naming all three kids? What do you mm-hmm. think about that? I mean, that to me raises some issues that from a logistical and practical standpoint, you know, if the kids don't all agree, you know, because again, we all, we all love our siblings, but we don't necessarily all agree on what should happen to our parents. So what do you tell someone who's in that predicament who has multiple children? Again, does it go back to common sense? Does it go back to the child who maybe is the most calm non-emotional, you know, I don't, it's, it's a tough situation. Mm. Absolutely. And I think it's going to vary from family to family in terms of how you make that decision. I'll just give you an example for my family, Uh, for my mom's healthcare power of attorney. I am the primary agent out of her three kids. And I, I couldn't tell you exactly why she chose me other than perhaps that I work in the estate planning field and am familiar with the roles and responsibility of an agent in this situation, whereas my brother and sister would at least have maybe that initial question of, okay, what am I doing here? Whereas I am at least fully understanding what she's asked me to do on her behalf. Mm -hmm. I think too, just thinking through, you know, I'm a father of four. I'd want to sit them and they're, they're young. So, I mean, this is hypothetical obviously, but I'd want to sit them down and just explain the, the rationale behind it. So I didn't leave any, anything to chance as far as in their imagination, because your imagination fills in, you know, blanks, right. And for better or for worse. And so I think it'd just be important just to say either whether it's proximity or an expertise or um, just, you know, Hey, they're a little bit more mature. I don't know, but you know, Hey, go ahead and take the bull by the horns and just let them know <laughs> why beforehand. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Indecision or, or frustration. 
yeah. I really think communicating makes sense just to to help the kids understand why that decision was made. Mm-hmm. As a true Texan would say, you took the bull by the horns, right? And you just put <laughs> everybody down and you tell them. Yeah, on, on any of your estate planning documents, I would yeah. argue, you know, yeah. if you feel comfortable sharing, doesn't mean you have to share the numbers behind all of it, but just the why. It really will help provide uh, some comfort, I think, overall to your loved ones if you kind of explain what's going to happen and why. And especially, like, it occurs to me, too, if, if there's been a divorce, um in the in the the situation or if there's you know it's a widowed spouse who's been remarried and there may not be that cohesion amongst the kids and the the new spouse like gosh like for the sake of harmony have that conversation before the time comes and i yeah i like what sarah said earlier you really do have to think about again what is that what what is the agent good at so if you have more than one kid who really can step in and, and play that role best for you? Is it a strength of theirs to make decisions under pressure? Mm-hmm. If they're not good at that, this may not be a good role. And I think of that just in any role we ask somebody to play on our behalf. Are they good at what we're asking them to do? If not, then, then don't choose them. Well, that is all for today. We appreciate your time and trust that you are better equipped to steward both your wealth and your financial resources. If you have questions or suggestions for a future topic, please direct those to infohouston at carsonwealth.com. Thank you again for joining us today. May you and your family encounter truth, beauty, and goodness on the road ahead. The opinions voiced in the Wisdom and Wealth podcast of advisor and host are for general information purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy assures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, please consult your attorney, accountant, financial, or tax advisor prior to investing. Securities and advisory services offered through Satera Advisory Networks, LLC broker-dealer and a registered investment advisor, member of FINRA SIPC. Investment advisory services also offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Satara Advisor Networks LLC is under separate ownership from the other named entity. Josh Clues is a non-producing registered representative of Satara Advisor Networks LLC. Our local address is 1780 Hughes Landing, Suite 570, Woodlands, Texas, 77380. Generally, a donor-advised fund is a separately identified fund or account that is maintained and operated by a Section 501c3 organization, which is called a sponsoring organization. Each account is composed of contributions made by individual donors. Once the donor makes the contribution, the organization has legal control over it. However, the donor or the donor's representative retains the advisory privileges with respect to the distribution of the funds and the investment of assets in the account. Donors take a tax deduction for all contributions at the time they are made, even though the money may not be dispersed to the charity until much later.